Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Shoftim, Judges. The address is Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 18, through chapter 21, verse 9. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 4th of 2006. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Having left its heavenly abode, it had to be accommodated in the modest cottages of human uncertainty and inadequacy. This, in essence, is the task of the halakha, the humanization of the word of God. Now, that's actually a quote. It sounds very lofty, I know. I didn't make it up. It's actually a quote from a book that I've got called Lo Bashamayim He. The Hebrew title suggests the English is Not in Heaven, The Nature and Function of Halakha by Eliezer Berkowitz. And uh, what it does is, I use that quote today because I believe it sets the tone for this week's Torah portion, or parasha, known as Shoftim. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me read the first... Um, Pasuk in Hebrew, and then I'll explain why I use this particular quote. The Hebrew of the first Pasuk of today's parasha reads, Shoftim v'shotrim titen l'cha b'chol sh'arecha asher Adonai Elohecha noten l'cha l'ishvatecha v'shaftu et ha'am mishpat tzedek. You are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates in the cities, Adonai is giving you, tribe by tribe, and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Now, of course, following the normal procedures for naming a portion after the opening few words, we see why it's called Shoftim, because the very first word says Shoftim. And so, um, by naming it this, the rabbis, or the ancients who actually 
assign the names to the Torah portions. They actually set the tone for the portion. And the, so, the, the tone is set to deal with the topic or the opening subject, which is justice. So we look at this verse, God commanding Moshe to explain to the people of Israel, you are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates in the cities that the Lord is God, that the Lord your God is giving you. There is to be delegated authority. And within this authority that's going to be a, a delegated and established, what's going to end up happening is that justice will be meted out on God's uh, uh, behalf to the people. That is to say, God himself is the righteous judge. But God is not going to come down and judge every matter between the people. Rather, God is going to um, spiritually equip those people that Moshe is commanding to um, to set up in their towns and their countries, the judges and the officers. Uh, God is going to, um, by, by giving the commandment, God is promising basically that he is going to be with them in the judgments and the rulings that they establish. But there's also something else that we're going to be skinned to see that's going to develop whenever two people come together and have a disagreement and a third party, particularly the judge or the, the officer, has to step in and um, uh, uh, you know, make a decision between these two people, um, judge between them, I should say, well then what's going to uh, come out of that is going to be basically a ruling that's handed down, especially if we're talking about a legal proceeding. And so we're going to get into that today. But um, before we go further into that direction, what we're going to talk about is this topic known as halacha, or some of you have heard it pronounced halacha. Um, Pastor Mark McClellan is fond of calling it halacha. Uh, I myself, I simply just say halacha, and uh, halacha is is is, an, is a peculiar thing. It's a peculiar term. It stems from a Hebrew word which refers to going. Uh, you know, to lech means to go, l e k h or l e c h. Um, uh, Halach means to walk, and um, or or walked. The word, the the verb uh, halach, the uh, root word halach means he walked. Um, halcha is the feminine form of that same root verb, that verb uh, halach, from where we get again uh, one of the other root words is lech, which means to go, and so we get this noun halacha or halacha. Halacha is the way in which to walk the way in which to go. A ruling, an established um, procedure, or an established um, guideline. And so we're going to talk about the established way in to walk out, the, the established way in which to walk out what? That's going to be the topic of much of our parsha. But I wanted to provide the a footnote for the book, in case you're interested in picking it up, uh, He, Not in Heaven. Uh, Eliezer Berkowitz wrote the book, uh, The Nature and Function of Halakha, Katav Publishing House, Incorporated, 1983. The quote I pulled at the beginning of my commentary was from page 73. Now let's talk about this this pursuit of justice as we have a lead-in into the topic of halacha. The pursuit of justice in the land, of course given by Hashem to Abraham and his descendants, uh, it's not just a novel concept. Judaism views the pursuit of justice as a mitzvah, a command. Indeed, the word translated pursue, verse 20, um, in, in the passage, uh, where God tells Avraham to pursue justice, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an adequate picture of what the Torah was trying to get across to the people. Pursue it. Seek after it. Uh, seek after 
after it actively. In fact, let me turn in my Torah passage here. I want to read that entire verse for you real quick so we can just develop the context. Let's see. Um, in... Let's see. Where did I put it? Here it is. It is in verse 20 of chapter 16. It's right within our Torah portion. I, I mentioned Abraham at first, but this is the, the wording actually belongs in our parashat. It reads, quote, Justice, only justice, you must pursue so that you will live and inherit the land Adonai your God is giving you. Justice, you must pursue it. Uh, it's not just a novel concept. It's not just something that God says, you know, when you get there, this would be nice if you could make sure this happens. Um, this is something that we need to actively make happen. It's got to happen, God says, <laughs> and you need to actively make sure it happens. And so, why was this concept so important to the Holy One? Well, obviously, we should know by now, because justice, being one of his many attributes when properly understood, justice brought about the implementation of the right attitude needed for proper relationships. Now, what relationships am I referring to? Well, you know the relationship between God and man is important. In fact, that's the most important relationship you can ever, ever develop in your entire life, your own personal relationship with God. But equally important, as you would agree, is the relationship between ourselves, between man and man, between man and woman, between woman and woman, between man and children, families and uh, humans. You know what I'm talking about, community relationships. This is equally important. So justice is a pillar, we might say, in the righteous community. And that's exactly how the Chazal, the ancient sages, viewed justice. It's not just a novel concept. It was a mitzvah. In fact, let's quote Rabbi Simeon uh, ben Gamaliel, or uh, you would say Gamaliel, but uh, Gamaliel, but uh, the Hebrew would be Gamliel. And uh, he is, let me pull a quote of his from the... Um, the uh, uh, Midrash series to Devarim Rabbah um, 5 1 reads, quote, Do not make mock of justice, for it is one of the three feet of the world. Why? For the sages have taught on three things the world rests on justice, on truth, and on peace. Know then full well that if you rest judgment, you shake the world, for it is one of its pillars. End quote. Clever saying, and I would have to agree with it. Justice is something that even the Noahide laws stress. Now, in case you're unfamiliar, the Noahide laws are the um, the list that was put together by the sages. I'm not exactly sure when they compiled it. It was probably orally transmitted uh, during the first century, but it eventually was codified later on, uh, written down and such, but you know, put into a book, redacted and such. Uh, at any rate, the Noahide laws were really implemented for righteous Jews, for people, I'm sorry, for righteous Gentiles, for people who were not Jewish but were wanting to fear God and, and, and begin, as it were, their path towards um, walking in his ways. Uh, the Jewish people of those days uh, felt that it was not necessary to, um, uh, to ask the non-Jew to walk into all 613 mitzvot. So instead, they formulated seven 
and they refer to the Noahide laws because Noah was considered the father of the Gentiles at the time. In many ways, he still is. But um, non-Jews were allowed to, uh, or were, I should say, were, were given these rules so that they could begin, as it were, their walk with God and still meet, as it were, the quota uh, necessary to find God's favor. Uh, keep in mind, this is all first century and following uh, Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology, uh, many of it carrying down to our current day. However, um, and, and I don't necessarily agree with all aspects of it, but the point in bringing it up is that justice is one of the seven Noahide principles that were even um, handed to Gentiles. In other words, from a Jewish worldview, both Jews and Gentiles are expected to pursue justice, or at least to establish justice within their communities. Now, how does this bear relevance to Halakha, and why am I bringing it into our commentary at this point? Well, in this next section, we're going to talk about this uh, topic of Halakha, and um, how it bears a relevance for both Jewish and Christian communities today. So, this next section is entitled, Establishing Halakha. Now, in our Torah portion, chapter 17 of Deuteronomy of this parasha talks about the details surrounding official legal matters. Of course, the court setting is in view, and um, these become important matters for any community. But for the Jewish community, uh, and of particular interest, is the subject dealt with in verses 8 through 13. Now, to be sure, the sages of old understood these passages to be talking about the matter of Halacha, and the authority of what is known in rabbinic circles as Oral Torah. So, many of you listening today to my podcasts are familiar with Oral Torah, but equally so, many of you may not be familiar. So, I asked the question in my commentary, just what is Oral Torah and why do we Christians need to know? I include myself in that term Christians because I do follow Christ, although I'm obviously not um, classified in in, in in, cla- in, um, in all uh, categories of everything that Christians stand for, uh, particularly in some of the uh, traditions that have been handed down through Christianity. But I do follow Christ, therefore I'm a Christian. Why do Christians care about the Oral Torah? Well, Jewish people obviously are interested in matters of Oral Torah because it bears a, a strong um, authority within many Jewish people's lives. But many Christians might say, well, I'm not Jewish and I don't perhaps find myself obligated to follow all the parts of the written Torah, certainly not the parts of the oral Torah, so why do I care? Well, I'm going to explain why I believe that Christians should be concerned to to a degree. I'm going to explain that below in my commentary, but first, a treatment of what has come to be known as oral Torah in Judaic circles must come first. So before I explain the why, I I, kind of need to do my best to explain the what. What is oral Torah? And then later on, I'll see if I can explain why oral Torah and why we care. So this subsection within the section known as establishing halacha, uh, now let's talk about a subsection within this paragraph known as oral Torah, or the Hebrew term is Torah Sheba Al-Peh, or Torah from the mouth. The word peh means mouth. Although the written Torah as we read the Bible, seems to be precise in its description of legal codes and commandments. Quite pragmatically, we would have to agree that it would be impossible to write down every conceivable human behavior and ascertain whether or not the Torah allowed each one of those behaviors. You would have to agree, right? Well, the sages being aware, being made aware of this, um, how shall I say, weakness of the Torah, um, needed to necessarily... 
allow for God to speak to every human experience, yet at the same time, they need to understand how is it that we can do God's will if God doesn't give us every single um, uh, possibility, uh, possible situation that we might find ourselves in. So, for instance, let me give you a very, very pertinent example within Jewish communities concerning the prohibition of work on the Sabbath. All right. Uh, the Torah repeatedly tells us that no work is to be done on the Sabbath. Uh, lighting a fire is prohibited on the Sabbath. Um, but then it just talks about in other places. For instance, let me just turn in my Torah now. This time I want to pull out the Hebrew because there's a there's a Hebrew word that wants, that I want to uh, emphasize. I'm going to jump through a few different passages. Um, uh, let's see. Which one do I want to pull out for? Exodus 31 is a good place to start. Chapter 31, not... 30 verse 1. In Exodus chapter 31, starting in verse 12, we read in the English, uh, Hashem said to Moses, saying, now, now you speak to the children of Israel. This time, by the way, I'm reading out of the stone edition Tanakh. Um, now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, however, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you and for your generations to know that I am Hashem, who makes you holy. You shall observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Its desecrators shall be put to death. For whoever does work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, and the seventh day is a day of complete rest. It is sacred to Hashem. Whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Notice it mentions work, which is the Hebrew word malacha, and it mentions the death penalty. Let me mention, uh, with that, let me put my thumb over there, if you want to follow along with me over to Exodus chapter... You know what? I don't want to go to Exodus, uh, go to go back in Exodus. I want to go forward in Leviticus real quick. Let's look at Leviticus 23. Here's a, here's a list in Leviticus that talks about um, uh, the festivals, but it starts by mentioning in the first three Pesukim, it starts by mentioning the Sabbath. Hashem spoke to Moses, I'm in Leviticus 23, verse 1 through 3. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Hashem's appointed festivals that you are, desig that you are to designate as holy convocations. These are my appointed festivals. And then look at verse 3, uh, which, you know, being couched within the context of a festival, um, or the, the festivals, the appointed times, uh, the Sabbath gets mentioned. Uh, for six days labor may be done, and the seventh day is a complete is a day of complete rest. It is a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is the Sabbath of Hashem in all your dwelling places. I pulled this passage out for a few reasons. Uh, it doesn't mention the uh, death penalty, but it does mention that it's a day of complete rest. Um, verses in Exodus. Uh, let's see. Did it say complete rest there? Who observes the Sabbath? Whoever does work. It doesn't say complete rest there. Um, it does talk about in the Leviticus passage that six days labor may be done. All right, Six days you can work, and the seventh day is a, a day of a complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. Again, uh, this, this Hebrew word work, malacha, what is it? What is God referring to when he says don't do any work? Um, let me... Just to make sure, let's look at verse 3 in the Hebrew. Uh, for six days labor may be done, and the seventh day, Sheshet Yamim, Teaseh, Malacha, Uvyom, Hashvi'i, Shabbat, Shabbaton, Mikra, Kodesh, Kol, Malacha, Lo Ta'asu, Shabbat, Huala, Donai, Bachom, Mishvotechem. Six days labor may be done, 
And the seventh day is a day of complete rest, a Shabbat Shabbaton, a day of complete rest, a holy congregation. You shall not do any work. Um, uh, um, I'm sorry, here we are. Malacha lo ta'asu. Malacha lo ta'asu. Work you shall not do. What is work? What is malacha? What is God referring to? We don't know. I mean, is it lighting fires? Is it shopping? Is it going to the mall? Is it is it browsing the internet? You know, is it using your computer? Is it listening to secular music? Is it going to, uh, you know, going to the theme park? Is it going to uh, the baseball game? What is malacha? And that's where the ancients. Uh, had problems. They had questions. You know, God, if you're going to assign the death penalty, I go back now to Exodus 31. More, God spoke to Moses, saying, el Yisrael, um, ach et Now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, However, you must observe my Sabbaths. Et Shabtotai Tishmaru, Kiot He, because these are a sign between me and for your generations. And then, um, you know, God God is, is serious about this. Look at Pasuk 14, for you shall observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Um, it, 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 and its desecrator shall be put to death. Wow. Put to death. So we've got this death penalty that wasn't, that wasn't mentioned in Leviticus, that is definitely mentioned in Exodus. And the, and the sages have to ask themselves, you know, if God's assigning the death penalty to this particular mitzvah, or the prohibition, or the, uh, the um, breaking of it, the violation of it. We better know what we're doing. We better know what malacha is. And, to be sure, you get down to Pasuk 16 and 17, and God says that this is an eternal covenant for all their generations. Between God and the children of Israel. It's a sign. And uh, it's a sign forever that in the six-day period, God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, He rested, and He was refreshed. So we've got these 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 important... Um, uh, distinctions that are assigned to the Sabbath. Uh, no work. Uh, it's a death penalty if you violate it. Um, it's a sign between me and the children of Israel. Uh, it's eternal for for me between me and their generations. Between and uh, throughout their generations, between me and, and and them, God says. Um, and it's a sign that in a six-day period I made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day I rested and was refreshed. What are we to make of all of this information? Well. Again, concerning the prohibition of work on the Sabbath, we notice that nowhere in the Torah is there a definition of what constitutes malacha. What is work? You know, at least in the, from the Torah perspective. If we turn to Amos chapter 8, verse 5, and Jeremiah 17, verse 21 through 24, then we see in these passages that they mention keeping the Sabbath in concrete terms. That is to say, by the times of the prophets at least the two passages I just mentioned. We had forbidding of trading and bearing a burden. We had some details that were given to the Shabbat, but um, overall it's impossible to enumerate all the probable behaviors and circumstances and to adequately give judgment as to whether or not they violate the Sabbath. You've got to agree that when God says um, in Exodus chapter... In fact, let me just turn to it real quick... Exodus chapter, again, we're still on the Sabbath principle. Exodus chapter 20. Here we have the giving of the ten words, the Devarim, the Asrat Hadvarim, or the Ten Commandments, as it is known in uh, Christian circles. And in Exodus 20, starting in Pasuk 8, 
uh, reread Zohar, Et Yom HaShabbat Lakadsho. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Here we have again. Six days you shall work and accomplish all your work. Va'asit kol malachtaka uv'yom hashvi'i Shabbat Shabbat la'adonai elohecha lo ta'ase kol malacha ata. But the seventh day is the day of Sabbath. Hashem your God shall not do any work. Six days you shall work and accomplish all your work. God tells us there to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What exactly does it mean to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? So we've got some some questions. Now, again, if I just ask this question, what does it mean to, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And if I were to ask a hundred people, you know what? I'm going to get a hundred different answers, even from people of the same community. Everybody's kind of got their own concept of what remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy might look like. So this became more of a problem, This these... these uh, uh, details I'm bringing up. This became more of a problem as time went on, and the historical and cultural circumstances changed in later periods. You know, like I mentioned, let's just say in our own community we decided to say that Sabbath violation involved turning on the radio on the Sabbath day. Well, obviously, say 500 years ago, that wouldn't have been a problem. There were no radios. So that's what I mean by it became more of a problem as time went on. Now, the violation of Sabbath is a very serious offense for Jewish people everywhere. We just read that it's a capital offense in ancient times. But the absence of a precise definition of working on the Sabbath, malcha, work, in the Pentateuch, has been a persistent problem, especially for the sages. Now again, unless people have a clear definition of what constitutes labor on the Sabbath, we have to agree that they cannot objectively observe it. And they can't collectively agree if we don't know what constitutes labor. Now again, even for contemporary pious Christians, this poses a serious problem, right? Like Amos and Jeremiah, the believing community surely had their own understanding about the Sabbath. And for them, they had something that became the tradition of the community. We might notice that since the time of Ezra, in the post-exilic period, you know, the people had already come out of exile, out of Babylon, and out of Assyria, and... During that time period, many experts on the law, the scribes, the sofrim, um, the beginning of the of, of the uh, uh, of the sages who who were, were were set up into an authoritative position, um, many things began to happen. But we still had to ask ourselves, uh, who has the right to say what is work and what is not, and for that matter, who has the right to enforce the laws once we establish what is work and what is a violation of work. So, in this time period, at least from the times of Ezra, um, interpreting the Torah in and for the covenant community um, was was something that was, was, was taken very, very seriously. And so many experts on the law uh, were around during that time. They were interpreting the laws. They were, they were adding... Um, uh, boundaries to the commandments and this is not necessarily a bad thing because um, the community looked to their leaders and they regarded their words as having what? Binding authority. Now in some cases the community invested binding authority on par with the Torah as the written Torah. That's where perhaps maybe Eyebrows are raised, at least within Christian circles, because we're not used to that. Maybe we, may, maybe within Catholic circles we might have it, but um, I, standard Protestant circles don't seem to um, 
welcome that particular uh, feature of community leadership to be able to have a word that is on par with the written word of God. You know, thus saith thus saith Ariel, and uh, the people are expected to step into thus saith Ariel equally as much as they would say, step into thus saith the Lord. That's what we begin to see during this post-exilic period. So, um, don't think it necessarily a bad thing. There, there, there was what I'm trying to say is there was a necessary. Um, uh, hole in the community for leaders to step in and, and begin to put boundaries on some of these commandments that seem to be left open-ended. That's to be expected. Now, the traditional interpretations of the Torah by the experts on the Torah, as well as those of the rabbis of blessed memory, the Chazal, uh, particularly after the destruction of 70 AD, if we can kind of fast-forward our clock for a bit, uh, fast-forward our time frame, um, these, these interpretations as they became um, more and more um, precise and detailed and clarified and authoritative, I should say, within the community, um, the, the oral tradition carried, be, began to carry more and more weight within the community. This became the Torah Shiva Alpe, or the Torah from the mouth. And uh, it was also known as the unwritten or the oral Torah. So this is the oral Torah. This is the tradition, the oral tradition. Now, according to um, according to the uh, uh, to Peter Kavot, uh, one of the tractates in the Mishnah, um, the the oral tradition was actually handed down um, from Moses, uh, f- uh, you know, from Sinai, transmitted to Joshua, to the elders, to the assembly. Uh, to the prophets, and then it was transmitted to the uh, the men of the um, of the Knesset or the Great Assembly. That's according to, to Peter Cavo. I'm going to quote that a little later on in my commentary. But I brought it up th- at this early point because um, we need to understand where did the oral Torah come from, and where did the uh, uh, the sages seem to derive their authority to make the decisions that they were making. Now I already mentioned that it's just a necessary and 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 I should say. It's a practical function of any community to develop uh, unwritten laws in addition to the written ones. So, in the, in the in, for instance, let's go back to the uh, um, the, the uh, example of the Sabbath that I was mentioning early, earlier, right? Judaism never really had a problem with the written Torah. But what they realized was that in order for their uh, members to be able to walk into the written Torah, they had to also respect the rulings and the decisions and the opinions of the judges and the rulers that they had set into place. Remember the Pasuk, the opening Pasuk of our current Torah portion? What did God say? Appoint judges and officers for all your gates. And then later on down in, in uh, chapter 17, um, in verse 11, it says, In accordance with the Torah, they teach, speaking of the leaders of the community, in accordance with the Torah, or the law, they teach you you are to carry out the judgments they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left from the verdict they declare to you. So we seem to have this um, commandment in a mitzvah right here in the Torah portion, uh, telling the people to listen to what their leaders are saying. And, and at, in principle, that's right. We really should understand that the leaders that have been appointed are there by, by, by heavenly authority, and we are to listen to what they say. So, consequently, Judaism has this notion that they've been able to keep the written Torah merely by observing the oral Torah. That is to say, by obeying the tradition in concrete terms, you know, the, uh, 
the, uh, the, the, the example uh, given for Sabbath, no business on the Sabbath. For example, let's close our shops and let's, let's build a fence around the Torah. Let's make sure that there are things that we will not do to violate the Sabbath. The ta- Sabbath says don't carry your, bur- your burden, don't carry your pack, or I'm sorry, the, um, the commandment says don't light a fire. Let's, let's use that example, because that's fairly concrete. That's, uh, that's right out of the Torah. That's in, what is that, in Exodus chapter 34, I believe. Let me just turn to it real quick. Uh, it is in chapter 35. I was very close. Exodus 35. Uh, Moshe assembled the whole community of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things which Adonai has ordered you to do. Pasuk 2 says, On six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is to be a holy day for you, a Shabbat of complete rest in honor of Adonai. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Pasuk 3 reads, You are not to kindle a fire in any of your homes on Shabbat. The Hebrew word... Um, Ba'ira uh, uh, means to burn or to ignite or to consume or to kindle. Comes from the root word ba'ar. Uh, don't kindle a fire. So let's start there. The Torah says don't kindle a fire. So what would you do in Judaism? We would build a fence around that mitzvah. So we're not even going to look at fire. We're not gonna even going to. We're not even going to go near our stoves. You know, we're not even going to turn on our stoves. We're not going to drive our cars. We're not going to turn on the lights. We're going to build fires or uh, fires. We're going to build uh, fences around this mitzvah so that we make sure we don't violate it. Unnecessarily, and on the on the conceptual level, that's the right thing to do. That that's really the proper attitude. I'm not knocking that. Don't get me wrong. I think it's the proper attitude to have as we as we look at God's commandments and say, God, your words are so precious to us. We don't want to violate them, and we may not fully understand them, but we'll do what we can to safeguard them, because there's a commandment to safeguard. Uh, the Hebrew word, um, um. I'm drawing a blank now. What is the Hebrew word? Oh, shamar, to safeguard the commandments. So we are to internalize this commandment first and safeguard it. And so I think it's got the right uh, um, attitude at heart to, uh, to, th- to think of this. So Jewish people, again, by, obe- by obeying the tradition in concrete terms, for, for the Sabbath example, no business on the Sabbath, then they felt that they could observe the commandment about the Sabbath just by making sure that the oral tradition was maintained. Now, um, Let's see. It's about 30 minutes into the commentary. I want to continue on this theme of halacha and oral Torah and um, how it is that we are to uh, establish justice and, and, and righteousness within our own communities. Um, but before I do, let me go ahead and take a break. And when we return, if you're following the written notes, we're around the middle of page 3. We're going to start with the paragraph that starts out with the sentence, during the highlight of the period of rabbinic Judaism. Let's talk there, okay? Uh, but for now, let's call this part A, and I hope you stay tuned to the commentary to Parashat Shoftim.